We are continuing our Gospel of John series, so if you will turn in your Bibles um, or your device or just simply look at the board behind us, although I will be referring to the Scripture quite a bit, so if you have access to your Bible or your PDF or your, we don't call them that anymore, smartphone, your iPhone, turn there, John 5, we'll be looking at the second half of John 5. Um, How do you, yeah, I want to always remind us of what we're doing in the Gospel of John, and I think one of the greatest phrases would be we're, we're seeing Jesus. We're like getting this up-close, personal view of Jesus. And I would remind us that you can read it not just one time, but for the rest of your life and never get enough. In fact, as you read through the Gospel of John, which I've been encouraging you to, ju- to do, you don't just have to go all the way through it, but you might come to a passage like this one, and reread it, and reread it, because so much comes out with each reading. And um, I just want to remind you kind of where we've been. Last week, we saw the second of two miracles in a row. Last week was the miracle where Jesus asked a man, do you want to be healed? And he sort of argued. He sort of wasn't sure, but Jesus healed him. And then Jesus entered into the beginning of of a conversation with Jewish leaders about who he is. And that's what we're going to pick up today. Then next week, we'll go to... Uh, chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000, and then we'll have a break for two weeks and then pick up again in chapter 6. So we're going to close out chapter 5 this week, and I want to kind of warn you that it's a long, tedious, like it's not going to flow very easily, right? Jesus is saying a lot of things that are so profound. With that being said, I'm going to beg you to stay with me because it's toward the end of this, this anthem, this passage that Jesus gives some amazing, well, all of it's amazing, right? But insight, you have to stay to the very end with me. And just to kind of set the stage, um, when Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath, the man finally figures out who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus comes to the temple and says, it was me, you know, you're well. The man says, aha, it was Jesus. And then the Jewish leaders go and they confront him. And John tells tells us they were seeking to kill him. And the reason was because of him saying God is his father. And what I love is um, most of us would think, let's become diplomatic, right? Like, let's start pedaling backwards. I've got a few more years. I want to do this ministry thing. Jesus begins to give truly, truly statements about who he is in a very profound way that I would think uh, would make them even more incensed or would save their lives, So this morning, let's pray it's the latter. Let us be saved this morning if we're not Christians. Let us be revived if we are by these words of Jesus. So let's look at chapter 5. We'll begin in 25, though I'll refer back to 18 through 24 a few times. But we'll read 25 to 47. Hear the words of our Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father, excuse me, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Isn't that a wonderful way to encourage people to not want to kill you? Wow. Verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. God, this is a very powerfully packed passage. We pray and we believe and we we trust that you are present through your spirit in this place. And you were present when John wrote these words. And you are illumining these words to our souls that we might understand more the beauty of Jesus. But we pray now, Father, that the enemy would not be present, that our own unbelief would be thwarted, and that we could receive the beauty and the truth in this passage for your glory. Amen. In um, 1941, C.S. Lewis wrote a sermon that um, I think most pastors have quoted like bits and pieces of in every, like almost every sermon you find like this like C.S. Lewis quote coming in, the weight of glory. And he's building that from 2 Corinthians 3, which we will actually look at later. But in this sermon, Lewis seeks to show us that God's glory is beautiful. And I will tell you, that sounds very strange. I, as I studied this passage, I got to that very last line where it says, you have exchanged the glory, or you have sought glory from one another and not the glory of God. And so I began to meditate and process on the concept of glory. And that's what we we're really going to seek to understand this morning, because I think this entire passage falls around that idea. That if we are living for the glory of man, we will fall right in line with these Jewish leaders. But if we are living for the glory of God, we will reflect the glory of Jesus. And what C.S. Lewis talks about, it's, it's where he talks about how we are far too easily pleased. You know, we make mud pies in the alleyway. Have you heard that quote? 
when God is offering us this, this holiday at the beach, what I want you to buy into as we move in this discussion is that God wants you to have the desires of your heart met and filled in him. That that is not second best. The evil one, the devil, your flesh, and this world will try to convince you that that is boring, that that's sort of this safe place, and that what you should do is go enjoy life over here. And what Jesus is saying is life is found in him. So where are you seeking your life? Where are you seeking glory? That's the question that I want to be rolling over you today. And as we move through this passage, we're going to see how glory, the glory of the Father, the glory of God, through Jesus, the Son, changes our view of life, changes our view of Jesus, of, the, of God the Father. And so we're going to work through that together. So point number one is going to be this. When we have the source of glory, which is Jesus, we will see God correctly. That's important. Um, in this passage, and this is actually last week's passage, but it's all one piece, they were wanting to kill Jesus, the Jewish leaders, because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's verse 18. So for them, the Jews, for them to hear Jesus simply say, my father, referring to God, was a blasphemy. Now think about how sad that is. That God, the triune God, Yahweh, wants to have his people and worship him and love him and have intimacy. And, and these Jewish leaders would think anybody that would call God their father is, bless, is com, committing blasphemy. Now, I went through the passage and underlined just every time, at least in the English, the word father was present 13 times. So Jesus, after they say that in verse 18, says my father or the father 13 times. Do you, do you hear what he's doing? He is saying, when you understand his glory, you will see God not as this distant God, but as your father. Do you see God the Father as your father? I think a, a theological mistake we make is we have in our minds the Trinity's God, Jesus, and we might say the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. They're all God, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so Jesus rightly is saying, Father. And I would encourage us, we can obviously say the word God, and that is fine, but there's something about the closeness of Father, or the Son, or the Spirit, that, that warms you up and draws you in. Later in this, in this gospel, John will say this in 1711, in the high priestly prayer, he's praying to his Father. And he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. He's talking to his father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's saying they're going to have the same relationship. Uh, they're going to be called into sonship as we are, as I am your son. Jesus becomes the elder brother, right, in his humanity. And we are welcomed into the fatherhood of God, and we are drawn close to him. And that is a picture of glory. Um, here's my illustration for that, concerts. I just heard Marsha Blue loving, con y'all went to the, con or Marsha went to the concert to Elton John. I will be going to a concert next Monday of my favorite musician and maybe the only concert I ever go to if I can go to a concert, James Taylor. I love James Taylor. So I'll be going, Emily and I will go and we're gonna sit there and I'm gonna sing every single word that is sung by James Taylor. 
How many of you like concerts? Right? Okay, a couple of you. Everyone likes concerts. Why did you all not raise your hand? This is a warm-up moment. You know what you hate when you go to a concert? The new songs. Why? Because all of a sudden you can't participate. Like, I don't have his latest album, so I really hope he doesn't play any of those. I want to sing the songs that I know. Why? Because when I sing those words, I'm not just living in, a, in, a, in an arena a thousand feet from James Taylor. It's like I'm at his, I hate to say feet, maybe I'm standing next to him with my, my hand on his shoulder. I'm not worshiping. And we're engaging together in, in music that I experienced when I was 14 and 15, driving around with my brother in his car with a cassette tape. Experiences of life come to reality in that moment. Glory is going both directions. He's not just doing an amazing job up there. I'm engaging as well. Do you see what I'm talking about? The closeness of glory, right? Do you feel that with your father? Call him God. He's distant. Call him father, and he's close. Do you draw into him? Do you see him? Do you know him? Oftentimes, I think what creates that tension of, the, of, of receiving his glory in that way is uh, we have this kind of dichotomy between an Old Testament God, kind of this stern, mean God, and then the New Testament God. That is not what the Bible presents at all, right? In fact, our passage does a beautiful job of explaining that, um, let's see the verse. He says, but the testament, let me see here, I'm, the Father, yes, Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. So what Jesus is saying is that he is the image, and we're going to talk about this in our confession of faith from Colossians 1, of the invisible God. Jesus is not the image that is similar. He doesn't sort of slightly represent. He is the image of the invisible God, so that when you are in the presence of Jesus, you are in the presence of God the Father. And it's very mysterious. Later in John 14, I, I quote this all the time. It's one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm gonna go prepare a room. I'm gonna go be with the Father. Philip says, we wanna go with you. We wanna see the Father. And Jesus says, um, I have been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is not saying, I am the Father, but he is saying, when you see me, you see the Father. And if any of you think you can explain that, I'll meet with you afterwards and begin writing down your words because they'll be profound. I don't know how it works, but I do know this, it's true. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And I love, I love in even his life on earth, there are these moments like the transfiguration where his transcendence is seen and all the people, all these disciples know to do is worship him, which is what we should be doing at all times, to Jesus. Do you see his glory? Do you see the source of glory? Do you want that? My favorite scene, as I wrap up point number one, is Peter, when Jesus walks on the water, we all know that story, and I have a feeling every one of us, if I stopped right now and quizzed you, would say the point of Peter was what? To experience walking on water. So that, that's what it is, right? Jesus is doing it. Wow, I'm that one disciple who has the most boldness. I'll do it. That's not what Peter wants to do. In my opinion of that passage, Peter wants to get to the Father. 
Peter wants to get to Jesus. And the distance and the water didn't matter. Remember when he jumps in the water at the end of this gospel of John to get to Jesus on the shore who's cooking fish? I think Peter gets out and asks Jesus to invite him out on the water because all he knows to do is move toward Jesus. So the question at this point is this. Where are you go? How are you seeking glory? And is Jesus a picture of glory for you? Does he satisfy you and bring glory to you? We will get to that answer in a little bit. But I just want to show that he is the source of glory. He's also, um, which shows us God correctly, the Father, but it also points to the reason he's even here. The reason this passage takes place, the reason Jesus is in ministry is to give life. Right? And that's a very strange concept because I think all of us think, well, I'm, I'm alive. Right? right now, every one of you right now is alive. I have to say that really quickly in case you have an accident. But right now, everyone's alive. So we think to ourselves, what do you mean Jesus gives us life? But throughout this passage, several times, he talks about his reason for coming. Um, of course, I want to go back to John 1, 4, where, he says, where we're told in the very beginning of the gospel, that in the beginning was the word. Uh, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 4, and in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And so there's this concept of life that Jesus seems to talk about that is more profound, more beautiful uh, than what we think of. And I would I would say that he calls it eternal life. But what we hear when we hear eternal life is, oh, one day, someday, I'm going to have eternal life. And I would say, absolutely, like that is amazing. When you die, you will spend eternity in heaven, and that is eternal life. But eternal life also breaks in now. So I want you to hear when you hear eternal life flourishing like right now. Are you flourishing are you experiencing the life that is possible? And if you're not, it's on some level because Jesus is not where you're going to for glory. We're going to other things for glory. And I'm going to continue to build that theme, but I want you to see in our passage, verse 21, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He's talking to dead people. I mean, Jesus is talking to people who are spiritually dead. Right? These are religious people who are turning to the Mosaic law and they don't understand the purpose of that law and they don't see Jesus and he's looking at them and he's like, the reason I'm here is to bring life to whom God has shown me to give life to. Um, the, the illustration that I want to use is this. The, the idea of... Um, the moon and the sun. Like at nighttime, you look up and you see the moon and it's beautiful, right? You can write poems about it. You can make logos out of it, posters, photos. But that moon is a lifeless rock, is it not? Like they landed on that moon and it's like dust. It's dust. And like there's no gravity. It's like you're bouncing around, right? And there's no trees. It's ugly. And you hit a golf ball, and it never, it's just gone. The golf ball's gone. So what's the big deal with the moon? Well, the sun, which 
forms its own fuel source, which heats itself, which lights itself, shines on that moon, and it brings it glory. And so the source of our life, if it's the sun, if it's Jesus, S-U-N, S-O-N, right, we will have reflection and glory. But when you go to things by themselves, like the moon, you'll get right up close, and it's decayed, and it's broken. And I want you to begin to think about how the sun, Jesus, gives you life and gives you flourishing. Where do you go to get life? In our passage, he talks about he's going to go to the tombs and bring up the dead to life. He's going to bring eternal life. We are made for this. We are made for glory. But the converse of that is judgment. Um, So we're going to go into judgment for just a moment. How many of you want to talk about that? Judgment. You like that word? Shane wants to. Thomas, okay. This passage is replete with this realization of judgment, right? If you look at verse 24, which it wasn't in our passage this morning, but last week, he, he ends that verse by saying, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm coming. The Father doesn't enact judgment. I, Jesus, do. And it sounds absolutely and very harsh. And let me tell you, it is. It's harsh. We've been studying Noah's Ark at home. We have a wide range of, of children. And then I feel often like a child when reading Noah's Ark as I hear their questions because they're unanswerable. Like, did they go out and get the animals or did the animals just come? And why birds? They can fly. And I guess fish were fine because it's water. And there's a million questions about Noah's Ark. But Noah's Ark, we know from Hebrews 11, is a picture of Christ. And we know that, that Noah goes into the ark, and it's a picture of safety, and everyone outside the ark perishes. But remember, they were already perishing, right? And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and says there will be judgment, understand that that is the world we live in. Like, we choose the flesh. We often, not, not Christians, but the, the non-Christians in our, in our midst and us when we're living out of the flesh are choosing judgment. We're choosing to live apart from God's glory. We're choosing to go after life on our own terms. And so when Jesus says judgment's going to come, he is saying essentially what you are, the path you're already on is where you're going, which of course will lead to eternal condemnation. And that's so, so hard to even consider, but it's absolutely what happens when we don't have the blood of Christ applied to us, when we don't enter into the ark, as it were, and are rescued by Jesus. But I want to tell you that these people are the ones you would think would be the most encouraged. They would say, "Why? Well, I don't have to worry about that. I have the scriptures. I have religion. I have, I have all the things. I'm going to heaven. And look at what Jesus says at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses, or there is one, excuse me, who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. What, what Jesus is saying is this. You and I, our natural disposition is to save ourselves. And for religious people, they read Moses apart from Jesus and thought, I can save myself. I can follow his laws. I can follow his rules. I can do it good enough. Irreligious people do the very same thing. I can't do that. I'll just go over here and I'll 
I'll do this thing. I'll run and throw parties. I'll, I'll live for myself. I'll seek money. I'll seek whatever. But they start to form their own laws. And Jesus says, either way, when you're living apart from him and his glory, you're living out of death and you are condemned already. So the question before us is this. How do you get the glory of Jesus? Like, is that even a desire? Like, do you want to flourish? Do you want to have him pouring into you and his light pouring into you? So we're going to look now at how that happens in our passage. There's three sources for this life, or three ways we live out his life, uh, his glory in our life. The first, there's people, blessings, and scripture. So this is where I want you to know this is a lot of text, a lot of information, but I think this will start to make sense. Um, Jesus explains the people that got, or the, the steps that have happened for the, this audience to believe. The first one is John the Baptist. He says, um, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. People are glorious. John the Baptist was absolutely glorious. He was set apart at birth. Um, he, go, he, he ate odd foods. He dressed strange. He said hard things. But his ministry brought glory to Israel. They went out to him. They poured into him. They got baptized by him. They loved it, right? I don't know if this audience loved him because he did call a lot of scribes and Pharisees brood of vipers. But the point is, Israel, by and large, liked John, except what did John do? He said, I'm not the way and the truth and the life. I'm not the one. He pointed to Jesus. And what that means is, all of a sudden, if you liked John, what you find out is he is simply pointing to the absolute source of glory, Jesus. Remember, John says, I must go away that he may increase, I must decrease. You all like people. Like, we love people. People have glory. Like, you're drawn to beauty, to humor, to friends and family and groups, and we love to move toward people. And what I think we would say is that's a gift. Oftentimes, God uses pastors and teachers and writers and speakers and, and parents and children, and, and we love people, but they're only helpful for us if Jesus is the source of the glory. In other words, like the moon, if we go toward that person, like, you have glory, I want you, you're going to get right up to them and see decay, right? They can't save you. John can't save you. So my question is, are you, how are you seeing people? Lewis has a very famous quote at our last church in Fort Collins, or two churches ago. Every time we did that middle greeting, this was read. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ truly hides, the glorifier and the glorified. God himself is truly hidden. So what Lewis is saying is on one hand, a Christian brother and sister is glorious. But the only way you can experience that glory is if you're receiving your glory from Jesus. Does that make sense? When you see someone that's beautiful, and you, like, you, know, you read this in the news, like this person stalked that actor. Have you ever read those articles? And, what the heck? Like who stalks people? 
you're all stalkers. Like every one of you, I don't mean to be mean, we all go to Facebook and stalk. And we look at images and we go, oh, that's beautiful. Or we lie and say, you look so cute. And we're like, oh, it's kind of bad lighting. They're losing their hair, you know. But we're, we engage with people either out of the glory of Jesus, which is the right way to do it, or we're trying to suck something out of them. How are you interacting with people? Secondly, how are you interacting with miracles? The second way Jesus says, you will know me, is by my miracles, by my works. And that's what he's been doing. He's been performing miracles. He raised this man, uh, this invalid. Right before that, he healed the official's son. Uh, He's going to feed 5,000 next week. So it's not the time frame here. That's our time frame. And yet, he says, these signs are for you because you do not believe. And I want to remind us again, if Jesus is our source, then as we come to the blessings in our life, the miracles, we can enjoy them because they're not what saves us. They're not the end. Right? We've talked a lot about, for some reason it's the one I go to, but Lazarus who was raised from the dead and how glorious that was. But wasn't there that thought of he's going to die? Like eventually. But the beauty of the miracle is not He's alive again for another 20 years. The beauty of the miracle is it reflects Jesus. So when the invalid stands up and walks, when this, this man's son is healed in chapter 4, remember the man, after his son's healed, believes and finds the glory of God in Christ. Practical. Here's the practical side of that. How are you engaging in the blessings in your life? Are you thankful? Do you have gratitude? In the sermon yesterday uh, at Presbytery, Mark Kuyper, who did a great job at the end, he just said, when I start losing my intimacy with the Father, he says, I've noticed. I don't notice it at the time, but in my repentance, when I look back, I'm noticing I'm ungrateful. I've become, I've become envious of something else and ungrateful for what I have. And I would say, when you have a miracle happen and you don't, and that's not coming from Jesus, you're not feasting on the glory of Christ, you tend to look at that miracle and go, that's great, but how can I keep it? How can I hold on to it? Every, when I, I went through a phase where I'd go to Thunder Games, I'd like to say this phase is over, and I would get to my seat, and I would be, finally settle in, and what would I do? How do you get to where you sit down there? Like that person on the, I'm just curious, how could I get to where I'm on that front row? Or the, I'll take the second row. Like, I like my blessing, this is wonderful, but rather than praising Jesus and being happy because my identity's not in where I sit, I'm scheming. Do you see the difference? Of when you see glory from Jesus, people, blessings, and then finally the scriptures. I think the, mo- <laughs> the craziest part of this passage is, um, well, not the craziest, but a crazy part, is he's talking to people who know their Bibles backwards and forwards. And he says, you search the scriptures, this is verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now we are, all of us, Bible-believing, well, this church is a, I'm not, there might be unchristians in the room, we want those who are still questioning to come in. But if you're a Christian, You would say this Bible is the word of God and in it is eternal life. But he says, no, it's not. Right? Now I'm being a little bit, I'm pressing you a little bit. 
He says, if they, in it, he says, I'm sorry, that you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. What he is saying is this. These scriptures have eternal life if that eternal life is me, Jesus. But if you come to the Bible and, and Jesus is not part of it and your goal is to just memorize the words, get the outlines, know the Bible trivia game, uh, figure all that out, sound good at Bible studies, and Jesus is not who you're pursuing, it's not for his glory, they're dead to you. And in fact, he goes on in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Right? And we're going to see that in a few weeks uh, in chapter 6, where after he's fed the 5,000, they come to him and say, you know, they start interacting with Moses and the law, and they start having this legal argument with Jesus. When Jesus is the source the scriptures come to life. I want to read from you. From, I want to read this from Second Corinthians thirteen, where Paul says this: "Since we have such a hope, we are bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, like this audience. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, these people, that same veil remains unlifted." Because only through Christ is that veil taken away. Do you remember when Moses would go into that tent of meeting, meet with Yahweh, glow, so the reflection of God is on him. He's now the moon, the sun's over here, he's glowing, right? And what did the Israelites do? Cover yourself. And what Paul is saying is in Christ, the veil is taken away. He says in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and we and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus in John 5 and later Paul in 2 Corinthians, continuing that thought, says this. Have you come to the glory of Yahweh? Have you come to Jesus' glory? And are you feasting on that? Is that what you're living for? And are you reflecting that? Or are you doing what all of us are prone to do, and that's trying to control your life through effort and through works and through how people consider you and think of you and if you get the better seat at the game and, and do you know enough of the Bible, what's weighing you down? What's keeping Jesus from being who he's supposed to be to you? I'm gonna just close with this illustration from um, The Help. I, I, it's not the same one, thankfully, from the last time. So same movie, but I didn't forget that I used this illustration. This is brand new. But remember, The Help is a movie that takes place in Jackson in the 60s during segregation. Um, there is a bad character named Miss Hilly who kind of rules all the old Miss grads and helps them figure out how to kind of keep their black help in place. And the women who are coming into their homes are, are though they're not slaves, right? They're free, but they're treated like that. They're treated horribly. And yet this is their livelihood, and they end up coming in and being better, better mothers and attuning to their children better. But Miss Hilly, in the movie, 
can't handle that. And there are books written. So this, the whole point of the movie is this book is written that exposes this racism. And it's, the author doesn't tell anybody where it is, but Miss Hilly, the bad woman, figures it out. And so she decides, I'm going to have Maybelline fired. Maybelline's kind of the hero. She's the one that, in our last illustration, says, you is good, you is smart, you is important to that little girl. So here comes Miss Hilly to that home, and she comes to Maybelline, and she says, I'm going to get you fired. I'm going to get you out of here. Now, I can't do it because of what you wrote in that book, but I can do it because I can frame you, she doesn't use that language, for being a thief because a, a piece of jewelry had gone missing. And you, this scene is so amazing. So here's this, she thinks she has all the power, and Maybelline looks like she's kind of nervous. And then she says, all you do is scare people, and all you do is lie to get what you want. And all of a sudden, you're kind of like, whoa. And she goes, you are a godless woman. Then the friend who's the boss walks into the room. Now you have three people, and Maybelline's standing there, and she continues, you are a godless woman. And the friend's like, Maybelline. And then Miss Hilly, the guest who has control, tells the friend, call the police. She's a thief. And you think that kind of would make Maybelline back away. And she gets close. In fact, you think she's going to hit Miss Hilly. You know what she says? She says, ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Ain't you tired? And that's my question. When I, aren't you tired? Like, I think Jesus wanted to look at these men and go, aren't you exhausted? Trying to live up to this law? Trying to be someone on Facebook? Trying to be someone in your home and in your neighborhood and in your sorority and your fraternity and your group? Aren't you just tired? Trying to be someone here? Trying to be the best pastor the best campus minister, the best husband, the best wife. I'm tired. Only the glory of Jesus will give you life. Let's bask in that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we run to so many things. This passage was so hard. I know I was all over the place. But Lord, you're the only source of glory. So my prayer, Holy Spirit, is that my friends would go away from this time to this day and begin to examine all the places they seek glory but are decaying. But all the ways we try to go after hobbies and entertainment and pleasures, studies, careers, opinions, politics, the list goes on and on. Our only source of glory is you, Jesus. So I pray we would continue to believe that. Maybe for some, this will be the first time they've ever thought of that or heard that because we're tired. We're tired of living life apart from you. Amen.